0: Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I'm going to help you rock your hormones and feel great in your body so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in. The latest research points to metabolic dysfunction as a root cause of many chronic diseases plaguing Americans today, including obesity, diabetes, heart disease, stroke, and dementia. But there is a growing body of evidence that a number of the consequences of poor metabolic health actually hit women harder than they hit men, which is what this entire episode is devoted to. Now, I'm really excited about this episode because it answers so many questions that I've had over the years about my metabolism and how it impacts my hormone health and my menstrual cycle. And it probably is going to be answering some of the questions you've had about your metabolism and hormone issues. What I know for sure is that it's all connected. Now, I also want you to know that this episode is an extension of last week's episode, 498, which is all about the unique risk factors that make women more prone to heart disease than men. I feel like both of these episodes are so important so that we can start to connect the dots to seeing, okay, what are unique risk factors that pertain to me that could be driving cardiometabolic risks down the line that I need to be aware of and that I potentially could mitigate. Now, I'm going to have the link to that episode in the show notes. You can go back and listen. It is a pretty short episode and 100% worth listening to because, man, it is so eye-opening the things that are impacting our biochemistry in a way that just isn't impacting men's. Now, before I get too deep, I just want to mention that I'm not just talking about what happens to your metabolism and body after making a few poor food choices or consuming a little too much alcohol or too much added sugar over the weekend. No, I'm talking about the years and years of effects on your body from trying to keep up in this very fast-paced life that doesn't always align with our biological rhythm, our hormones, or our menstrual cycle, which at the end of the day is a big part of how our body works and functions. Whether you're having children or not, your menstrual cycle is a vital sign, and so many of the different processes in our body are directed to ensure that your menstrual cycle is working properly, including the big whopper, your metabolic health. Now, the good news is that you can make a massive difference and start healing your metabolism in your body pretty quickly by listening to your body connecting into your body, and nourishing yourself with metabolically healthy meals that I show you exactly how to do in episode 383. Now, if you had a chance to go listen to that episode, it's probably worth listening to it again because I go over the complexity of our metabolism and how it's not just calories in or low carb or paleo and exercise. It's more complex. It's more diverse than that. Our metabolism is controlled by our hormones, by our gut health, our liver health. There's so many component pieces, our blood sugar and insulin, obviously. And what goes into our diet regarding our metabolic health are things you're not even thinking about, like how we can support our gut with gut healing foods and to have a diverse array of plant-based foods, fermented foods. What does it look like to eat minimally processed meals? And so this episode goes deep into exactly how we can curate metabolically healthy meals on the day-to-day to begin to really heal our body. If you're wondering if there was ever an episode that is all about food as medicine, that is the episode. So I'll have the, the link for episode 383 in the show notes for you to go back and listen into. Okay, so, I've been talking a lot about metabolic dysfunction and I bet you're wondering what does it even mean? Like it feels so vague. Well, clinically speaking, metabolic health is defined by optimal levels of five markers: blood sugar, triglycerides, high-density lipoprotein, so LDL's, cholesterol, blood pressure, and waist circumference without using medication. So, having these optimal levers, these optimal markers without medication. Now, we can improve most of these markers by consistently making choices that keep blood sugar in check, as well as insulin, and keeping it within a healthy range, because blood sugar and insulin levels are a big piece of this puzzle. Now, the opposite state is known as metabolic syndrome or metabolic dysfunction, and this is where people have three or more of the following traits, a waistline of 35 inches for women and 40 inches for men, fasting blood glucose above 100 milligrams per deciliter, And this is what you would test first thing in the morning. LDL cholesterol, less than 40 milligrams per deciliter. Triglycerides above 150 milligrams per deciliter. And high blood pressure, which is 130 over 85 or higher, right? So 130 systolic over 85 diastolic or higher. Currently, only 8% of American adults have good metabolic health. The other 92% display one or more features that indicate that they have metabolic dysfunction, and that their bodies are not able to utilize and process fat and carbohydrates efficiently for energy. And the symptoms of metabolic dysfunction can both be overt and subtle. Now, when we're talking about overt, metabolic dysfunction looks like obesity, which is dysfunctional body fat storage, often measured by BMI, insulin resistance and diabetes, which is dysfunctional glucose processing, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is dysfunctional management of glucose and fat in our liver, cancer, because remember, cancer cells thrive on excess sugar, Alzheimer's disease, which is now being called type 3 diabetes with evidence of insulin resistance in the brain, and cardiovascular disease like heart attack and stroke, which is damage to our blood vessels from inflammation and excess glucose, and chronic kidney disease, which is vessels of the kidney impaired by excess glucose. Now, more subtly, poor metabolic health can look like a full spectrum of daily pain points of modern living that keep us from reaching our full potential and goals, right? It's the daily struggles, fatigue, brain fog, depression, anxiety, lack of exercise, endurance, and strength, infertility, irregular menstrual cycles, hot flashes, acne, chronic pain, increased appetite, cravings, and more. Now, statistics show that by the age of 45 years old, 88% of women will be struggling with one or more of these features of metabolic dysfunction, the overt features, right, the lab features, and women are more likely than men to be overweight or have obesity, which is a significant risk factor for diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and even Alzheimer's. Women are also more likely to have impaired glucose tolerance throughout their lifetime. Now, several factors are responsible for these differences, including genetics, body fat distribution, BMI, history of gestational diabetes, and balance of sex hormones. Studies show women are more likely to experience sleep disturbances and insomnia, as well as higher levels of stress, all of which are linked to an increased risk of metabolic disease. Also, many issues affecting women's health can have roots in poor sugar regulation and insulin resistance. These include polycystic ovarian syndrome, infertility, menstrual cycle dysfunction, menopausal symptoms, weight management, and even skin health. Now, I want to take a look at the six major ways in which metabolic health directly impacts women's health. Because I want to give, like, details on how, when we have impaired metabolic health, how that can absolutely just completely mess with our body's biochemistry. And on the flip side, that when we have good metabolic health, when we work on our metabolism, we can begin to alleviate some of these specific factors that are directly connected to us. So the first one I want to start with, which is, gosh, it is a biggie for so many women out there, maybe even you, is polycystic ovarian syndrome and infertility. Polycystic ovarian syndrome is a leading cause of infertility, and women with PCOS are more likely to be insulin-resistant and develop diabetes. So what is PCOS? Well, PCOS is a hormone disorder that is the most common cause of female infertility today. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, PCOS affects 6 to 12% of U.S. women of reproductive age and as many as 5 million women in the U.S., this exact cause of PCOS is unknown. We know that it's a mixture of genetics and lifestyle that's playing a role, right? But PCOS is a condition of hormonal imbalance, so the symptoms can really widely vary. That's why PCOS, it's a syndrome. They can include irregular menstrual cycles, obesity, infertility, increased levels of male hormones, thinning, scalp hair, excess body hair, acne, and many small follicles or collections of cells developing fluid on our ovaries, right, that polycystic ovarian piece. In addition, PCOS has metabolic consequences. Research shows that as many as 70% of women with PCOS have insulin resistance. The CDC reports that more than half of women with PCOS will develop type two diabetes by age 40. While it's not entirely clear why insulin resistance affects so many women with PCOS, it likely involves a combination of genetics, diet, and again, lifestyle factors, like stress, right? But exactly how do these high insulin levels affect PCOS and infertility? Like, how, what is the metabolic connection here? Well, excess insulin in the body stimulates the theca cells of the ovaries to produce excess masculine hormones, also known as androgens, right? Including testosterone, which leads to many of the symptoms of PCOS, like infertility and hair growth. Some research shows that women with PCOS and high levels of androgens have higher blood glucose levels than women with PCOS who have lower androgen levels. And while excess insulin resistance can spur increases in androgens, high androgen levels can worsen insulin resistance in several ways, including lowering levels of adoleptin, an insulin-sensitizing hormone, and impairing insulin activity in muscle and fat cells. So how do we begin to heal it? Now, mind you, this is the million-dollar question, and there's so many great courses and books on it as well, but I just want you to know that there is good news that diet and lifestyle changes can make a massive difference for many women. One study showed that 24 weeks on a low-glycemic diet improved insulin sensitivity and lowered fasting insulin for women with PCOS. Other studies have demonstrated similar effects. One of the things that I absolutely love about my 14-day detox, I've had hundreds of women with PCOS join the program because it is such a powerful metabolic shift in their diet and their lifestyle, particularly around blood glucose levels and insulin resistance. And when women have done it for, gosh, 60 days, 30 to 60 days, not 14, I wish that I could say a 14 day detox that is designed to increase insulin sensitivity is going to fix PCOS, but that is absolutely not true. But we have seen some incredible things with women doing it for 30 to 60 days where their periods come back, their fasting blood sugar lowers, where we've seen fasting insulin levels lower, um, and other other indicators of metabolic dysfunction where they begin to feel better. The acne goes away, their the hair growth decreases, and again, and their, their cycle is more regular. So again, you know, There's a lot of programs out there that can help reduce and improve insulin sensitivity. That's just one example that I have seen within my own community work for women. All right, so now number two, your menstrual cycle and blood sugar levels. Fluctuations in estrogen and progesterone hormones during the menstrual cycle impact glucose metabolism and insulin sensitivity. And this is not surprising at all because your menstrual cycle is such a big part of your chemistry, of your body, of your overall health, and what is required on an energetic level and a metabolic level and a nutrient level to ensure that your menstrual cycle is working in lockstep every single month. Oh my gosh, it requires so many resources. So it's no wonder when we start to see menstrual cycle issues that we can always point to our metabolic health as one of the factors leading to why it's not working the way that we would love it to work. So why this happens, I want to speak into that. The menstrual cycle has two phases, right? We talk about this all the time. The follicular or pre-ovulation phase and the luteal, the post-ovulation phase. Now, I technically like to break it down into four phases, but we're just gonna break it down into two just for simple terms today. Now, the luteal phase is characterized by increased estrogen and progesterone as the body prepares for fertilization. And then those both drop like all the way down before menstruation if no fertilization occurs. So if you don't get pregnant, your hormones are gonna drop back down to day one, right? Where your period starts. Now this follicular phase generally has low progesterone levels, like low to zero and uptick in estrogen at the end. So studies show that glucose concentrations tend to be higher in the luteal phase than in the follicular phase as higher levels of progesterone decrease insulin sensitivity, which means insulin is not as efficient at clearing glucose from your blood leading to higher levels. Now, what this means is as we're getting closer and closer to our period, especially that week prior, basically the PMS week, one of the things that we'll experience a lot of is cravings, mood swings. We may experience weight gain. And a lot of this is attributed to the fact that progesterone levels were super high and we are definitely more insulin resistant. So our bodies are craving more carbs, more sugar. And, and so how we really manage that and mitigate that is, yes, we do give ourselves carbs, like no more intermittent fasting, no more keto that week, give ourselves carbs, but just make them really nutrient dense carbs, right? We have to work with our bodies metabolic needs at that time, you know, the reason why we become insulin resistant and the body is telling us, okay, we need more resources. We need more really complex carbohydrate resources to get the job done, to get over, to cross the finish line so that we can start the cycle all over again. Now, on the other hand, Estrogen has many beneficial metabolic effects, including improving the expression of insulin signaling molecules in skeletal muscles, especially when it comes to humans, and lowering visceral fat and improving insulin sensitivity in women. Some studies also find that fasting insulin rises before ovulation, reaching a height during the luteal phase. This adds weight to the studies demonstrating lower insulin sensitivity during that luteal phase. So during the follicular phase, a very different ballgame, right? This is where we can really push intermittent fasting. We can really push a keto-centric diet if that works for you. We can kind of push the envelope in heavier weight training because we are more insulin sensitive. We've got more muscle capacity. So if there was a time to push... That's really the time where we should leverage our metabolism in a way that gets us a lot of gains, whereas we should be a lot more gentler with ourselves at the end of that luteal phase, mainly because we're just needing more energy at that time. So it's really fascinating because so often no one tells us that our menstrual cycle is dynamic and that it's metabolically changing. And there's a reason why we've got cravings right before our period, or there's a reason why we feel like we can really push hard before ovulation, but man, we feel like a puddle on the ground right before our period. It is literally blood sugar changes, insulin changes, hormone changes, metabolic changes, even muscle composition and the way that we manage stress shifts and changes during our cycle. And without that awareness, man, we just beat ourselves up and we we have so much shame and also blame from the culture that we're just not who we need to be or how we should be during parts of our cycle as well. And it's all just a bunch of BS. Your cycle and your body is so inherently smart. And it's got such a wisdom to it that it's literally trying to push you in the right direction. But because all these cultural norms tell us that, oh, this is wrong and, oh, this is not how it's supposed to be. You just need to push through it. That's just a bunch of BS, right? That we now know when we look at the metabolic changes in regards to our menstrual cycle, that there are glaring, you know, lifestyle switches that we need to make that really support not only our menstrual health, but our overall metabolic health as well. And it's because when we push through those and we ignore our body that we, again, we have higher risk factors for cardiometabolic disease down the road. So what do we do? One of the pieces when it comes to our menstrual cycle is one, understanding it, to track it. So like know what's going on with your cycle. And then, you know, in that understanding piece, really work with your phases of your cycle to nourish your body in a way that's going to support your metabolic hormones. It's going to support your actual sex hormones and going to, you know, help your body thrive in those states. Number three, hot flashes and other menopausal symptoms. So research shows a relationship between high blood sugar levels and menopausal symptoms. We're talking diabetes and insulin resistance because they appear to become more worse. It seems like after we get over the menopausal hurdle, our risk factors jump significantly, right? Even before menopause, as the statistic that I shared with you early, women at 45 years old, I am a year and a half away from being 45 years old. Like the idea that 88% of us by that time have one marker at least towards metabolic dysfunction is just alarming. And it just really makes us think like, what is going down in our 30s and our early 40s, even in our 20s, that is driving this, right? You think about dementia and Alzheimer's, by the time it shows up, we'll have had like laid the foundation for dementia and Alzheimer's, you know, a decade and a half prior, 15 years prior. And so when you think about when we see this uptick in cardiometabolic risk in women, it's not at 55 that when the alarm is sounded, we needed to be worried about it. Yes, can we make changes at 55? Absolutely. But it was at 35, at 40, where we needed to really be paying attention and mitigating the fact that these acclaimed hormones are going to put us at a greater risk. So why does this happen? Well, I kind of broke it down, but I got, I want to share a little bit more. Again, up to 80% of women undergoing natural menopause experience hot flashes And about 30% say they have frequent to severe symptoms. The medical term for hot flashes is vasomotor episodes since the constriction and dilation of blood vessels appear to play a major role. Research shows that ovarian changes in early menopause that cause drops in estrogen bring on these hot flashes. For example, one study followed 150,000 postmenopausal women for more than 20 years and found that hot flashes and night sweats were linked to an 18% increased risk of diabetes. Another study looking at more than 3,000 women for eight years found that hot flashes associated with higher insulin resistance and fasting blood glucose levels, and it showed that these postmenopausal women also had a higher incidence of metabolic syndrome. Now, there are multiple theories for the interaction between metabolic health and menopausal symptoms. After menopause, women face a significant increase in central obesity, insulin resistance, and an increase in body fat composition across the board, along with high cholesterol, triglycerides, and other components of metabolic dysfunction. There's also the fact that estrogen decreases in menopause, which has broad metabolic effects. Another contributing factor could be that hot flashes can disrupt sleep, and I think that it's a multitude of these things. Researchers have found that not getting enough sleep or having poor sleep quality can hinder the body's ability to process glucose efficiently. I'm actually doing an episode literally on how sleep messes with our blood sugar, but then also how high levels of blood sugar and insulin resistance at night affect sleep. It's like a catch-22, but here's the thing, that there are some things that we can do to mitigate that as well. Now, finally, another hypothesis suggests that hot flashes in menopause result from an energy shortage in the brain caused by less glucose crossing the blood-brain barrier, perhaps an effect of lowering estrogen levels. Now, the reason why I'm saying the effect of lowered estrogen levels is that it is known that estrogen is a very protective hormone when it comes to insulin sensitivity. And that when we lose that, we lose a lot of that insulin sensitivity protection. So I personally believe that it's a multitude of things. I think that there's insulin resistance, you know, into our 40s and into our 50s that it's causing insulin resistance in the brain, leading to not enough glucose uptake in our brain cells. I also do believe that it's poor sleep quality because that becomes a major issue in perimenopause into menopause. And then I also believe that it has to do with vascular issues as well due to high levels of insulin resistance and poor blood sugar control. So I think it's a combination of all these things. I also think that it's a part of the liver. If the liver is really sluggish due to, again, potentially, you know, non-alcohol fatty liver disease, early, early stages of that or the inability for the liver to process sugar and fats correctly before it's even fatty liver disease, I think that's also a major player here. At the end of the day, what I do know to be true is that the metabolism is absolutely playing a role in menopausal symptoms, including memory issues, hot flashes, sleeplessness, right, fatigue, brain fog. All of these are definitely connected to metabolic issues. Number four, skin health, Wrinkles and acne, right? So we know that many factors contribute to common skin issues like wrinkles and acne for wrinkles This includes thinning skin layers and decreased collagen and elastin for acne This includes excess oil production and research suggests excess sugar may play a role in several of these mechanisms So why does this even happen? Right. Well, excess circulating glucose in the bloodstream can lead to a process called glycation in which glucose molecules bond to proteins, fats and DNA in a cell. These bonds form advanced glycation end products known as AGES, A-G-E-S, which can cause damage through the cells through things like inflammation and oxidative stress. When we accumulate these advanced glycation end product, we do accumulate these as we age, but we do know that excess sugar and other lifestyle factors like smoking can accelerate this buildup. Now the problem of glycation for the skin is that it alters normal collagen function. Collagen is a protein that plays a vital role in skin structure and resilience. It also helps give blood vessels their structure, which is why advanced glycation end products can lead to vascular conditions as well. So when it comes to acne, And that specifically, so if we're thinking, gosh, we're seeing increased aging, it's not just sun, right? It could be just increased sugar consumption or poor blood sugar control that's driving this glycation response. Now, when it comes to acne, there is a body of evidence showing correlations with elevated blood sugar. I cannot tell you how many friends of mine over the years used to get acne like right in their chin area and below the chin when it was correlated to sugar, right? It was elevated blood sugar that was driving that. Even women I knew in my 20s, I saw that often. And we see that as well with PCOS. So it's interesting that we can have some symptoms of PCOS, but not all the symptoms of PCOS. And that's what's fascinating about this particular syndrome. That's why it can be so difficult to diagnose and really put your thumb on it because women can really vary in terms of symptomology, including acne. Now, high glycemic diets can lead to excess insulin and related hormones known like particularly like insulin or insulin-like growth factor, which can spur glands around hair follicles to produce oil, which ultimately contributes to acne. So what do we do to address these issues, particularly the glycation, right? And the acne. Well, one study found that diet changes over four months could reduce glycation collagen by 25% in people with diabetes. And a 2012 study on acne and diet found that eating a low glycemic diet, so low glycemic foods compared to high carbohydrate foods over 10 weeks led to significantly less acne and less evidence of proteins that are known to activate oil production in the skin. So at the end of the day, it's really about blood sugar control, right? And helping to create more insulin sensitivity over time. And there's a, you know, it takes a minimum, probably a minimum of six weeks or so to really begin to see these changes happen. And then number five, we've got two more to go, weight loss and obesity. So as I mentioned before, this will be the third time I mention it, by 45 years old, women are more likely to be overweight or obese than men and insulin resistance brought on in part by excess blood sugar plays a significant role in obesity Also, hormone differences are definitely a factor here, including leptin and ghrelin. So why this happens? Well, we know that several factors play a role in weight gain in women, including hormones that make it more difficult for women to lose weight as they age, as well as the effects of pregnancy and menopause. Blood sugar deregulation also plays an important role here. Insulin is a crucial factor in body fat storage. It's literally known as the fat storage hormone. This hormone allows cells to take up glucose for energy and store glucose for energy. Honestly, if it wasn't for our fat cells, we'd be in a lot of danger because we need something to take up all this blood sugar. Now, when there's an excess amount of glucose in the bloodstream, increased insulin levels signal the body to store it, first as a liver in glycogen, and then as fat cells around the body. So when the liver doesn't have any more room right, for stored glycogen, it then has to move glycogen out into the fat cells. It is a process where the liver moves glycogen into fat. I want to say it's de novo lipolysis. And so that's what's going on here. So when we're not eating, insulin falls down back to hopefully lower levels, signaling the body that it should burn stored energy, starting with excess glucose, then glycogen, and then fat. But if insulin levels remain high or even like moderately high, the body does not signal as it should and we do not start to burn fat. In short, insulin prevents fat burning. Not only does it do fat storage, but it also prevents fat burning. Research shows food can affect glycemic response. The effect of a meal has a big play on blood sugar levels. Really interesting. And what's really more fascinating is that research shows food can affect glycemic response in men and women differently. The balance of sex-specific hormones also plays an essential role in energy metabolism and body composition. Interestingly, while lower levels of testosterone are linked to a higher risk of diabetes in men, elevated testosterone in women, which can occur in conditions like PCOS, increase this risk as well. Women have a much more dramatic fluctuation in hormones and body mass throughout their lifetime because of reproductive factors. During menopause, for example, women lose estrogen and the protective effects that come with it. A loss of estrogen is directly linked to increased visceral fat, higher cholesterol levels, and a progression of metabolic syndrome. As life expectancies have climbed in recent years, women now spend several decades with decreased estrogen, facing these health challenges from which they previously had a lot of protection with when they had estrogen coursing through their bodies. So how do we address this? How do we address that there are, again, dynamic metabolic changes and blood sugar changes in women based on the different phases in our cycle, the different phases in our life, whether we're pregnant or not, whether we're going through perimenopause or not, whether we're in menopause or postmenopause, right? There's a lot to consider. It just gets a little bit more complex for us. So given that the multiple potential factors in obesity for women throughout our lives is at play here, one of the best ways to maintain a healthy weight is to develop a habit of eating for stable blood sugar levels. This awareness of optimal dietary and lifestyle choices to keep glucose in a healthy and stable range is especially important as metabolic challenges increase after menopause if diet is not enough, you can always add more movement, more exercise. You can get supplements to help you as well. One of my absolute favorite supplements is my blood sugar balancing glucose support, which I think is a game changer. So if you are in perimenopause or menopause and your blood sugar at your annual exam has been ticking up, up, up gradually, best believe that 10 years prior, insulin resistance was probably taking place earlier. Unfortunately, we don't test for insulin or fasting insulin, which is just just such a bummer. But if you have noticed that and you're looking for something to help mitigate increased blood sugar and support lifestyle choices, I highly recommend glucose support as a daily supplement. What I recommend is taking two pills in the morning before breakfast and then having two pills at night before dinner. So that's how I recommend breaking them up. That way you set the tone from the get-go in the morning to support blood sugars throughout the day. And then your biggest meal is often dinner. At least I know for us it is. And I feel like that's the majority of us in the world and in this country in particular. And so if we can take a really supportive blood glucose supplement before that biggest meal, it can really make a big difference. Also, we're more insulin resistant at night, just because that's the way our circadian clock works. That's a big motivation to want to take something in the evening to help mitigate the fact that we're just more insulin resistant in general in the evening. It is super simple, super powerful to take. I will have the link to glucose support in my show notes in case you want to give it a go. Again, lots of incredible herbs here that are designed to lower post-meal insulin response, post-meal glucose response, and help to support metabolic markers like lipids, triglycerides, and cholesterol. So it looks at all facets of your metabolic health, not just blood sugar control and insulin control. It's more than that. Okay, Number six, the last but not least. I know this has been, whoo, this has been a marathon of an episode, but I promise it is worth it. I think the more that we understand what's going on and how blood sugar metabolism and overall metabolic health has a profound impact on our particular physiology is important. These are the things that have been missing for so long, and it is majorly caused issues for us metabolically and mortality rates, right? Mortality rates are greater for women than they are men when it comes to cardiovascular health and cardiovascular disease. So I just feel like it's really important for us to really get a fuller picture of what's going on. Number six, metabolic health and dementia. This is a big one, right? So if you want, I you know, I would ask you to take notes, but most likely if you're like me, you're taking a walk or you're in your car or you're doing dishes or you're running around the house, handling stuff around the house, right, with your earbuds in. So I want to speak into notes or no notes. You know, women are unfortunately far more likely to suffer from dementia than men. While many factors may account for this, studies show people with high blood sugar have a higher risk of Alzheimer's dementia and cognitive impairment. So why is this happening? Across the globe, the number of women with dementia is two times the number in men. According to the American Alzheimer's Association, close to 4 million women have Alzheimer's, a form of dementia, almost two-thirds of all cases— kind of reminds me, it's a little bit less than autoimmune conditions, which is 75%. Here we're talking about like 66%, right? One simple potential reason, women live longer than men, making it more likely that they reach ages that put them at greater risk. But there are metabolic health reasons as well. For example, one study found that people with prediabetes have 1.5 times higher risk of vascular dementia or cognitive dysfunction related to reduced blood flow to the brain. This finding held up even when researchers controlled for confounding risk factors like BMI, smoking, and certain medications. In another study, they looked at more than 80,000 people over 60 years old. Researchers found that metabolic syndrome increased the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease by 11 times. Metabolic syndrome also causes inflammation, which exacerbates Alzheimer's disease. Another theory involves the damage to the blood-brain barrier. Metabolic syndrome is known to contribute to oxidative stress, in which free radicals can damage those cells. Oxidative stress and excess glucose and fats contribute to vascular dysfunction and disrupt the blood-brain barrier responsible for controlling which molecules move from the bloodstream to the brain. When that barrier is damaged, more inflammatory cells and pathogens can pass through, leading to neuroinflammation, a driver of dementia. Finally, dysfunction of the mitochondria or our little energy factories, you know I love them so much, of our cells in our bodies is involved in the development of insulin resistance. Mitochondrial dysfunction is also a significant feature of Alzheimer's disease, and this shared process likely accounts for the vital link between the conditions. So, And again, when women have a greater risk of blood sugar deregulation, and insulin resistance throughout their lifetime, we can see how there's a greater risk for dementia over time. Yes, we live a little bit older than men, but man, there's a lot of other unique risk factors in which I covered in last week's episode, 498, that just put us at greater risk for not just dementia and Alzheimer's, but for cardiovascular disease and obesity and diabetes and autoimmune conditions, right? These numbers are prevalent. It's not just Alzheimer's that we're talking about here. So how do we heal and mitigate the risk for Alzheimer's, right? Again, maintaining healthy glucose and insulin levels is gonna be essential for protecting the brain. In fact, researchers from the diabetes studies conclude that their findings suggest that a significant portion of cases of dementia in women may be preventable by effectively controlling insulin homeostasis. Lastly, there are a few of my go-to tricks that work for all metabolic dysfunction issues, right? Because at the end of the day, We know how metabolic dysfunction is classified. We also know the risk factors specifically relating to women. And so we know we can pull those levers, those lifestyle levers, along with helping to keep our blood sugar balance and our insulin as stable as possible. So some of my favorite tricks here, and I absolutely have episodes diving into these topics specifically, um, circadian-based intermittent fasting and even maybe some more elongated intermittent fasting, right? You're kind of playing with fasting, but also know when you need to be in specific fasting windows. For instance, there's a time where we can really pull the lever On intermittent fasting in our cycle. And then there's other times in our cycle that week leading up to our period where we should not be intermittent fasting at all. Like the most we should do is that 12 hour circadian fast, because that's really what allows our circadian rhythm to work well. But we also got to be working with our 28 day cycle too. So just note that there's a time and a place for really pressing on the gas for intermittent fasting and making some big gains there. But also there's a time where we need to ease off the gas pedal as well. Next eating metabolically healthy meals. Think protein, healthy fats, and lots and lots of fiber in the form of plants and a diverse array of plants at that. I know (laughs) it's nothing new, but man, we've just got to drill it into our heads that plants, protein, healthy fats are the way to go and as minimally processed as possible. Next, walking. Gosh, game changer. These are simple strategies, right? 10 to 20 minutes after meals to stabilize blood sugar levels, man, it can make a huge difference even if you've got type 2 diabetes, especially if you have type 2 diabetes. Avoiding added sugar, especially those found in processed foods and drinks, and then taking a blood sugar balancing supplement like my glucose support or Metabolic Restore. I also have a Metabolic Restore supplement as well. I love them paired together. They do not cancel each other out. They're designed to build on each other. I take Metabolic Restore right now because I'm still breastfeeding. And the second I am done with that journey, I'm gonna start glucose support. But it has been a game changer for my mom and family members, for Alex, my husband, and for so many of my amazing, essentially whole customers who are adding glucose support into their daily regimen. Now, you can find links to these topics and the products in the show notes. I will have them all. And last but not least, I wanna just take a moment and share with you that right now, you can enter to win my 500th episode, my podcast episode giveaway here on the Essentially You podcast. I'm giving away over $500 in prizes, including some Apple AirPods. And I have a feeling you could be one of the three people winning some incredible prizes. Now, all you got to do is take one minute to subscribe and rate this show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, or whatever platform you listen to this show on. And then go to drmarisa.com slash 500 giveaway to enter to win. Now, before you go, all you got to do, again, quickly subscribe and rate the show and then enter into the giveaway. I will have the link in the show notes and everything that you need to know about the giveaway will be inside the link. Again, it's drmarisa.com slash 500, so five zero zero giveaway. And again, it's all in the show notes for this episode, episode 501. We just passed 500 episodes yesterday. I loved yesterday's episode as well. If you haven't had a chance, go and check it out. It was not hard hitting, but like just some truth. And it really also tells you a little bit of the direction that the podcast is going as well in 2023. And I will be announcing three winners next week here on the show on Tuesday, March 14th. So be sure to tune in on Tuesday as well for the three-winner announcement. As always, thank you so much for listening in on this big old episode that really dives into our unique factors that really determine our metabolic health and why we should have them on our radar. Again, thank you so much. If there's someone that needs to listen to this episode, be sure to share it with them by taking a screenshot or however you love to share episodes. All right, talk to you soon. Bye.